0: Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It For Bartolo. Uh, My name is Jun Lee. Uh, This is a podcast that I've been really, really excited about for a long time. Uh, When I was first thinking about what I wanted this show to become back in December, before this was something you guys listened to, before this was on iTunes or anything, before it was on the Hardball Times, when I was thinking about what I wanted this show to become and who I wanted to potentially talk to on a hopefully weekly basis... This was one of the first people I, I, that came to my mind. Uh, and on the show this week, we have Buster only of ESPN. Uh, I'm a big fan of Buster, uh, and he's probably one of the faces of, of baseball r- reporting today. Uh, you know, Buster's not only a really, really great reporter, he's an incredibly nice guy. Uh, and he was incredibly generous with his time, uh, and, and his willingness to, to come onto the show and talk about uh, really a lot of things. He was Buster was super, super earnest, uh, when it came to just kind of talking about his life beyond just baseball uh, and how he, how he got to where he is today. Uh, I met, I first met Buster, this was a couple years ago, and I think I was an intern at the Boston Herald for the time. Uh, and this was a Sunday night baseball game, so ESPN was in town broadcasting. I think it was a Red Sox-Yankees Yankees game. And uh, it, was, it was pouring outside. This was probably an hour and a half before the game. Uh, and Buster and I were the only two people in the Red Sox dugout. It was pouring outside, so I didn't really have anywhere to go. And so I went up to Buster as a, as a very big fan, and, and I was really, really nervous because, you know, this was someone who was one of the people that I, I grew up watching on TV as, a, as kind of a model baseball reporter. And so I went up to Buster super, super nervous, and uh, he couldn't have been uh, a nicer person, just so willing to give advice to uh, someone who was super, super nervous, obviously, and, and very anxious uh, to, to learn, but... He was just so generous with his time and so willing to give advice. And, uh, I was super happy, uh, when he agreed to come onto the podcast, uh, when I sent him uh, an email a couple months back. And so we figured out a time and we, and we got, and it got him on the phone. And, you know, Buster was super, super earnest when it came to talking about his life, um, growing up on the farm and, uh, and, you know the trials and tribulations that came with that being the only person in his family who who really enjoyed sports and understood sports, and then taking uh you know having some financial difficulties in in college coming from a, a not so great uh, financial background and it took him six years to graduate from Vanderbilt because of finances, and, and Buster was super super real and uh very very honest about about that struggle and uh, it was it was it was a very enlightening conversation on my end at least. Uh, and then Buster also you know, talked about starting off at a small newspaper in Nashville and uh, how we got to San Diego. And then uh, at one point, he was up for the Boston Red Sox, uh, Boston Globe beat gig, didn't get that, and then eventually ended up at the New York Times covering the Yankees and then ended up at ESPN at the end of the day. Uh, and then we also talked about his his close relationship with Peter Gammons, uh, the baseball you know writing legend, who who has agreed to come onto the show at some point in in the future. Uh, so hopefully that that all works out because um, I I would love to to have a conversation at length with Peter uh, on on this uh, on this platform. But uh, I think you guys will really enjoy uh, the conversation I had with Buster. Uh, he was just you know incredibly gracious with his time and and really willing to, to answer anything that I, that I asked him. so uh, I think you you guys will really enjoy the podcast and, and get another side of Buster. you know Buster doesn't do a ton of interviews uh, beyond just the internal ESPN stuff about baseball. He doesn't he hasn't talked a lot about his career so uh, hopefully you guys uh, will get you know a peek behind the curtain here and uh, for you know people like me who are young people wanting to get into the industry after college or maybe you're in high school and want to pursue journalism in college uh, hopefully this will be uh, something that you guys can enjoy listening to and if you are just a fan of Buster or you know just just listen to the podcast I hope you guys enjoy this interview as well Uh, so without further ado uh, here's my uh, conversation with Buster Olney All right, today on the show we have Buster only. Buster, thanks for coming on. Sure,
1: absolutely.
0: So you grew up in Vermont and we're both fellow New Englanders, but you had a very different experience from me cuz I'm from Boston. You lived on the farm, so <laughs> what what was what was what were your responsibilities on a, on a daily basis growing up there?
1: Well, it was a dairy farm, and we had Jersey cows, uh, you know, and, and from the time we started, when we started uh, this farm uh, in 1972, and then my my parents bought uh, a different farm in 1973, uh, you know, we had 25 to 50 jerseys, depending on where we were, sort of in the progression of the farm, uh, with about 120 acres. And so, uh, you know, it's twice a day we went out to the barn to do chores. The only exception was Christmas morning. Uh, When my stepfather would do all the chores for the kids and, you know, during the summertime, you're baling hay and and, uh, you're cutting or splitting wood and and getting ready for the wintertime. In the wintertime, uh, you're going out in the morning before school and you're doing about an hour's worth of chores, cleaning up, shoveling manure and, and feeding the cows. And at the end of the day, you're doing a similar type thing. And really, I I told friends as I gotten older that 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 was like the perfect training to be a baseball reporter because it goes on literally every single day of the year because every single day of the year the cows have to get milked in the morning and they have to get milked at night and that's kind of how baseball works too.
0: So so it seemed like it maybe it developed a discipline for you to to go out and do nitty gritty things on a daily basis.
1: I I always enjoyed work uh, and I do think you know, if you're going to cover baseball there's definitely going to be a lot of work. And, you know, my stepfather was the hardest working person I've ever known. Um, You know, growing up, I can remember days where it was 50 below windchill factor, and my family had no money. And so if there was a problem, uh, if a cow was sick, he had to essentially do his own veterinary work. If something was broken, uh, you know, a tractor broke down, the hay baler uh, broke, if something happened with a bulk tank where you keep your milk, he had to do all that, uh, and on those days when it was 50 below wind chill factor, he'd be out there with an axe cutting through the ice so you could water the cows. And absolutely, uh, when you're around someone like that and in a situation like that, uh, you probably better figure out a way to enjoy work. And I've always been fortunate in that I, I have always, whether I bake bagels in college or uh, you know, covered high school sports and my first jobs out of college or you know, covering Major League Baseball. I, I always enjoyed getting out there and doing stuff like that.
0: So living on the farm out there, uh, how did you kind of get interested into baseball and sports writing and, and all of that stuff?
1: When I was eight years old, uh, my mom got me a book about Sandy Koufax. Uh, this was in 1972. And, and that was sort of like my introduction into baseball and, and then I got some baseball cards the following year. Uh, I started playing Little League when I was eight. My family was actually in Woodstock, Vermont until I was nine. And so I played uh, Little League there and And really thereafter just became a total nerd uh, when it came to baseball, just collecting baseball cards, listening on the radio because my family didn't have a, a television until I was 14, 15 years old And so if I was going to follow baseball, it was going to be, you know, listening to Red Sox games, which in central Vermont at that time was on WDV out of Waterbury. Or as a a fan of the Dodgers, which I became after I read the Koufax book, it means, you know, turning into WCAU when the the Dodgers played in Philadelphia, or WOR when they played the Mets. Uh, And... You know, the the funny thing was is that literally every other person in my family does not like sports. <laughs> so my mom wasn't really into it. You know, she was sort of a, you know, from afar, she might casually be interested in a team like the 1969 Mets, but she didn't like it. My stepfather absolutely does not like sports, can't figure out why anyone would like sports. My siblings all don't like sports at all. And I was just starved for it, and uh, it, it was it been probably a, a different upbringing than a lot of people have if they're interested in sports.
0: So, how did you, I guess, start start getting interested into, into sports writing and sports reporting?
1: Well, I went. My my parents, my stepfather, as I mentioned, can fix everything and anything. I can't fix anything. Uh, I mean, I would have been the worst possible candidate to actually operate a farm on my own. And, and my my parents understood at a young age that if I was going to accomplish anything, it probably was going to be outside of the the world of farming, and so I went to boarding school in Western Massachusetts in at Northfield Mount Hermon School. And the soft, my sophomore year, my first year away for at school, uh, the English department invited uh, Red Smith, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning sports columnist for the New York Times to come and speak at the school and it was actually the year before red uh passed away and so they were the english teachers were trying to figure out okay which kids might be interested in that and i had you know by then in my first months there it solidified a reputation to being the the total baseball dork and so they basically at this dinner uh arranged so that i could sit next to red smith and i had a great conversation with him then and uh, I remember debating with him about whether Re- Rabbit Maranville should be a Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, and then I realized about halfway through the conversation that he had seen Rabbit play in person. <laughs> and all I knew about Rabbit was that he was a figure from a book. But, you know, I, that was about the time when I'm figuring out at five foot seven and three quarters that I'm not going to play for the Lakers. I'm not going to play for the Dodgers. I think we've I all gone, loved- under
0: that, uh, I've gone through that before at one point or another.
1: Yeah, exactly, uh, and and so, you know, after that conversation, I, I was like, oh boy, that that seems like a great job, and right away I started working for the high school newspaper that we had, which I was a lot fortunate in that we came out once a week, and so I got to write a lot and dove into it, and really from that point forward, that's all I wanted to do.
0: What did you take away from that conversation with Red Smith?
1: Uh, just first off, I, I he was so generous, and he was had such. Uh, a grace about him, uh, and you know, and such a joy of what he did. And, and obviously, in the next couple of years, uh, I, I learned more about Red. I had read him in the Sunday Times because my my parents always got that that in the Sunday Globe uh, every weekend. But after that, I he had some collections, and I read his work. Uh, and he really drew from from all that his joy from this. And as I mentioned, he passed away. Uh, just shortly thereafter, I remember writing a column about that and about my experience in meeting with him and writing about how much enjoyment he had from sports. And that was something that I shared with him, even though at that time I was 15, 16 years old.
0: Mm-hmm. So so you do the high school newspaper, you get really invested into journalism, uh, and then you go to Vanderbilt. Did you go to Vanderbilt specifically to study journalism?
1: Oh, no, no. Uh, in fact, you know Vanderbilt doesn't have a journalism major, but... Uh, they did. They still have what, you know, The at that time was the only full scholarship to be a sports writer, the Grantland Rice Scholarship, and I applied for that upon the recommendation of my college counselor who, you know, just coincidentally had worked at Vanderbilt in the college admissions department, and I didn't get that scholarship. In fact,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you know, if you finish second or if you finish third and that's where I finished, you don't get a nickel for it. But I do think it helped me get into the school, the fact that I was considered to be one of the finalists, because uh, I, I don't think my SAT scores at that time probably would have put me in with a lot of the other kids who were getting into Vanderbilt at that time. But I, I went to the school and just decided uh, as I went through the process that that probably would be a good place for me to go because I'd grown up in this small town of 400 people in central Vermont. And, you know, you go to school in the south and it would be a different experience and a, an experience that would challenge you. And so that's why I went down there and and when I went there and if you went back and looked at my college transcript which is poor to mediocre uh, you would understand that I spent virtually all of my time when I was at Vanderbilt working for the uh, student newspaper the Hustler.
0: So what what uh what what are some of your uh the, your favorite things they kind of took away from from Vanderbilt? I know you uh, I think I read somewhere that it took you 6 years to graduate and you uh you worked at a bagel shop at some point during during school.
1: Yeah, as I mentioned, I mean, my parents You know, they're extremely poor, and on top of that, because they weren't able to pay their taxes a couple of years, I had to, uh, I couldn't get uh, financial aid uh, through the government, so I had to establish independence. So it took me a long time to go through that process, and you know, I borrowed money from uh, parents of a friend of mine to go back to school after taking a year off and baking bagels in West Lebanon, New Hampshire uh and so i wound up graduating at at age 24 now you know when i went to vanderbilt it was very different than the way it is now uh you go to the campus now it's extremely diverse it's a great place uh you know no matter where you're from and when i went there i mean there's no getting around it it was a place that had a lot of racism and uh the freshman my freshman year uh the first fall in the fall of 82 there was a fraternity party there one of my best friends Uh, At school who was from Yonkers went there, and and the brothers were dressed up in KKK outfits. It was just a different time and place. Uh, And I didn't really enjoy the school at all, but the professors were great. Uh, I really loved the community of Nashville, and it's why I wound up living there for for the most of eight years, except for the one year in which I took off from school. And I I thought about transferring after a couple of years because I didn't like the racism uh, at all. But and I wasn't comfortable with it. But then I thought to myself, and you know what, it makes sense to to be in a place where you learn something different than what you're used to. And so that's why I wound up staying. And and obviously, the school itself academically
0: uh,
1: is a great place to go from, even if you're not a good student. Like I wasn't a good student.
0: What did you uh, take away from you know having to work hard to to get uh, to get through school and then to pay for school? What did you kind of take away from that whole situation?
1: Well. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, I can. <laughs> I get emotional talking about all the different people who helped me get through there. Uh, and when I got that piece of paper, uh, finally graduating from Vanderbilt, it meant so much to me. And the process meant so much to me. And, and understanding uh, how many people, you know, contributed to it. It, it. It's always stuck with me. There's no doubt about it. I mean, besides. Uh, you know Dick and Jane Letter, I dedicated the, the book on the Yankees that he did, my first book, to them. Uh, they were the ones who lent me the money to go back to college, and they need more money beyond that. My old roommate, Dan Bean, lent me money. Uh, I was still 21 hours short of graduating, and I had basically run out of opportunities for financial aid. And then the uh, the publisher of the National Banner at the time, Irby Simpkins, uh, called me into his office because I had asked him for a full-time job at the Nashville Banner. And he said, you know, how come you want to come work for us full-time? And I and I said, well, you know what, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to raise the money to get those last 21 hours I need. And he said, I, I'll make a deal with you. If you come and work with me for a year uh, here, then I'll pay off your last 21 hours. And that's how I got through school. And it was, you know, through a lot of gestures like that and – uh so there's no doubt that there's a lot of pride that I have, and and a lot of humility because I couldn't have possibly done it, gotten through without so many people reaching out and uh, extending themselves, you know, personally and financially.
0: How do you think that affects uh, you? Maybe just in not not just in your journalism, but just kind of how you uh, carry yourself on a daily basis.
1: Uh, well, I you know you always have that phrase about giving back, and I have always thought that. You know, in talking with, uh, you know, young reporters and people who want to get of the business that you, you know, you make as much time as possible. And, you know, I, I hope that uh, I would be that way anyway. But someone who had the experience that I had with so many people helping me, I, I can't. I imagine that you would conduct yourself in any other way. And, and I'm only mentioning a few people. You know, there was Fred Russell, who was became uh, like a grandfather in me. He was a columnist at the Nashville Banner. He was in his late 80s when I got to know him. He became like a grandfather in me, or Barry Lorge who was a sports setter at the San Diego Union who uh, was on the, um, the selection committee for the grant Rice scholarship and kept up with me and brought me out to San Diego. So many great examples like that and, and you know you hope to sort of live up to that by, by re- doing the same for young reporters now.
0: So you mentioned you, you had your first job at the Nashville Banner. Uh, how did how did you kind of learn from that experience as a as someone who's still in college and, and going through or, or wanting to pursue a career in journalism?
1: Well, and I started there doing a lot of stringer work, uh, you know, covering uh, high school sports, doing high school features. And, and I had done some things in, in uh, Vermont for the Berry Times Argus, uh, for the Rutland Herald, for the Valley News. But the Nashville Banner Experience was really the first professional experience that I had consistently And you learn about doing things like I, you know, worked on the desk there, uh, copy editing in the morning. And it was an afternoon paper at that time. So to go and do that shift, you'd be getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, which for me – Uh, You know, growing up on a farm and then baking bagels in the morning, for that job I would get up at 2. That was like a piece of cake. (laughs) But, uh, you know, to go through the process of of understanding why pages are laid out the way they are, you know, doing uh, page layout yourself, all that, uh, to me, you know, you learn about not only uh, what I really wanted to do, which was reporting and going through that, but also uh, stepping in the shoes of people who would be your editors for years. And, and, you know, by and large, we all have exceptions, (laughs) you know, but by and large, you've always got along well with the editors. And I'm sure part of the reason why is because I spent that time working on the desk.
0: Do you remember any of your early mistakes as a reporter? Uh, Just learning experiences you had from from learning on the job, really?
1: Absolutely. Uh, First off, you know, I'm, without a doubt, you know, would be probably, I think I'd be described as an introvert. And so in order to be a reporter, you have to understand in order to do that job, you have to extend yourself. And you have to be comfortable with people. And I remember doing my first writing assignment actually at the Vanderbilt Hustler on two offensive linemen for the the football team. And it was just painful. And I've always, you know, gotten along well with people easily. But in that situation, sort of uh, asking them for something in, in terms of answers, that was something that I had to really force myself to do, and it's something I certainly you know got much more comfortable with. And I can remember a lead that I did when I was working at the Nashville Banner when I compared uh, Vanderbilt's great shooting to the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And I couldn't remember, and it was obviously awful as I sit here describing it, and I couldn't think at that moment, like why people might be offended by that. And we certainly got some response to that end. And now, over time, I just cringe when I think about that lead or um, you know others that I wrote. But I think that's part of the learning process.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you said you said you're an introvert. How did you kind of kind of start to to get out of your shell? To I mean, you have to you have to be able to talk to people to be a reporter and be able to small talk. So how did you kind of find your way out of that?
1: Well, I never, you know, it's interesting. I never had a problem uh, talking with people, but I think it's more of being polite and not necessarily having the instinct of asking someone for something. Uh, you know, if you grew up on a farm in Vermont, you know, the last thing anybody who lives in Vermont knows, you, that, uh, uh, you know, the natives are not people who ask other people for things, and that's the way it felt. And and so you're essentially saying, I want you to give me this information, and I don't know if I have anything to offer you in return. And you have to stop thinking of it that way, and I did. And so that, that allowed me to sort of push through. And now, I, you know, my own interest in the process, like I love writing about why things happen, uh, you know, why is it that things happen on the field and what reasons and what was the thought process and what was the uh, you know going through the the principal's mind is they went through it, and, and that all overcame any of that uh, I think natural reserve that you that I had growing up.
0: So you at, while you were in Nashville, you you uh, had a pretty close relationship with Don Meyer, and you eventually wrote a book on him. How did that uh, start about?
1: Well, he was the head coach at uh, at that time what was known as david lipscomb college and it, it, they had a great rivalry in city in nashville uh at the nai level with a school that's just two miles down the road from lipscomb uh belmont and it just so happened that i lived literally in between the two schools and the great thing about that, you know, as opposed to Vanderbilt uh, football or Vanderbilt basketball, was is that all the practices were open and the coaches were completely open. And let's face it, part of the reason why is because they're looking for attention, uh, you know, news coverage that uh, a school like Vanderbilt or the University of Tennessee takes for granted. But also, I think that's the way Coach Meyer was, and it's certainly the way that Rick Bird, who still coaches at Belmont, is. And so every day, I would go to one team's practice or the other, and I got to know those teams really well, and it just so happened that the two years that I was covering City College basketball and those two schools and their rivalry um, you know, were two of the most incredible years for basketball in the city of Nashville. The, the, the Lipscomb team that I covered in 1989 and 90s, that literally to this day is the highest scoring team in the history of college basketball. Coach Myers' team had that. The At that time, the number one all time leading scorer uh, in the history of college basketball was a, a junior and a senior on the team, Philip Hutchison. And the guy who is currently the number one all time leading scorer was a red shirt on that team named John Pierce, who later went on to pass Phillip. And the player of the year at that level was Joe Bailing, who played for Belmont. And these two teams, you know, they don't have the restrictions that Division One does. And the two teams played each other six times in uh, the senior year for Phillip and for Joe Bailing. And the, the games were just so intense. And a lot of these kids had grown up playing against each other, you know, at the amateur level, at the, you know, 10th, uh, 11th grade in high school – 12th grade, even going back to grade school, and the rivalry, I think, reflected the intensity uh, that had been built up over that time, and it was some of the best sporting stuff that I have ever covered, and so I got to know Coach Meyer then, and when he left Lipscomb to uh, to go to Northern State in South Dakota, I just kept up with him uh, after after he got there.
0: Basketball seems to be a thing that you you sometimes tweet about, and like people will tell you, "Oh, I'll stick to baseball, Buster." But it seems like uh, you know beyond baseball, basketball is a sport that interests you. From my you know analysis of your Twitter feed, I mean, Twitter can only say so much. But like, yeah, I mean, beyond baseball, like what what do you watch?
1: Well, and I you know when I talk to journalism class about this, there's no doubt you know baseball has uh, been been the focus for me, especially in the last 20 years, 22 years. But I pretty much covered everything. I mean, you name a sport, I've covered it. Uh, you know, including wall climbing. When I was in San Diego, I did a, a long piece on pigeon racing. I've done dressage, uh, golf matches. I've covered pretty much every level of football. I covered the New York Giants for a year when I was at the New York Times. Um, so I, I mean, I can watch just about anything, and I love just about every sport. Uh, you know, I, I. The other day, I was uh, visiting my daughter. Uh, who's in school up in the Boston area, and uh, I was waiting for her to get out of class, and I sort of naturally gravitated over to the gym and some watching her practice for that high school team. And, and I, I you know, do that sometimes in the Little League games, just stop by and just stand by the fence and, and see what you see. And, you know, love this, you know, not only watch the games that are going on, but sort of try to measure the body language and the relationships between the people while you're there.
0: What is it about sports that interests you, uh, just kind of inherently?
1: well i you know love the strategy, uh, which is why i, I can 't stand the idea of the d h going out of the national league because there's such a layer of strategy uh, you know in the in the n f l like in the Super Bowl to see if you 're going to attack Cam Newton, how do you do that versus how you attack Tom Brady? Uh, I love that part of it, but in terms of being a writer, I love the human fishbowl element of it, and you know getting people who are from very different backgrounds. You know, learning about what shaped them, you know, whether it's uh, CeCe Sabathia, who to me is about as accountable as any athlete that I've ever covered. You know, he grew up in a single-parent home. Uh, His mom, Marge, was tough. Pulled him off the high school basketball team because his grades in Spanish weren't good enough. Uh, You know, to covering someone like Orlando Hernandez, El Duque with the Yankees, uh, where he was a Cuban defector, and to be there literally for his first days, where he's running around the practice field at the Yankee spring training facility with so much joy, and then follow that to seeing his first game in the big leagues and seeing how he's reacting to a big spot in the playoffs against the Indians. I, You know, between the – you have the elements of, of all their, their background of these people, and then you throw them into this fishbowl in which there's money, in which there's fame, in which there's pressure – and then you see how they react that that always has been very fascinating to me.
0: So you mentioned uh that you did some that you uh, did was the job in San Diego the one after Nashville?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I I was hired to cover high schools in San Diego and I did that for a couple of years along with some college basketball and then I I switched over to the
0: Padres in 1992. So was so that was your first major league beat? Yes.
1: I covered when I was in uh, Nashville, I covered the the Nashville Sounds, who were a AAA affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. And that was sort of my first taste of, you know, guys who would play in the big leagues. Jack Armstrong and and Rob Dibble came through there, Skeeter Barnes.
0: Deion Sanders. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. Deion Sanders, who was playing for the Columbus Clippers at the time. Those guys all went through there.
0: Um, what, what did you learn from your first experience on the beat covering the Padres?
1: Well, I was really fortunate uh, for a couple reasons. One, the Padres, as bad as they were, in the first year I covered them on a full-time basis, 1993, they lost 101 games, but uh, they were a fascinating story because they had gone through the complete teardown by ownership. Actually, Tom Warner is now you know, part of the Red Sox ownership, was the Padres owner at that time, and it became known as the fire sale in which you know they traded off Fred McGriff and Gary Sheffield and Tony Fernandez, uh, so many great stars. And that was interesting as a reporter to cover. But I also was fortunate in that one of the players left behind, Tony Gwynn, was such a great player to cover if you're a young reporter and you're learning how to do the job because, A, he was completely accessible. I mean, he would uh, basically talk to you at any time and he was absolutely anecdotal in the way that he talked. And so if you, as a young reporter, you're thinking about a, a way to describe a particular event in a game, and you said, Tony, uh, tell me about that situation when he came up in the bottom of the ninth inning and the score was tight, he would literally walk you through everything that he was thinking, including you know what the, he's anticipating from the pitcher, pitch sequence, what he's thinking. What he's thinking is he's rounding first base after hitting the ball in the gap. Uh, and and so it really helped, I think, me in terms of, as a writer in developing a style. And I that's why when Tony passed away, you know, I don't try to be friends with the players. I don't hang out with the players. I'm not going out to dinner with the players. But when Tony passed away, it felt really personal because he just meant, you know, so much to me as a writer and as a reporter.
0: What were some of the early lessons you took away from you know just kind of learning as a reporter on that beat on a daily basis covering that team, um, and and just kind of getting the 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 sense of the day to day grind of of the major league baseball season?
1: Well, I think one thing for sure is, and, and I. I began to feel this when I was covering the, the Nashville Sounds is that a lot of the way that you, and we were talking before about you know getting comfortable in conversation, really it's a lot like when you first move into a dorm in college where you're thrown into a group of people that you don't really know, and you might have something in common with some of their backgrounds, and your goal as a student living in a dorm is to develop an instant rapport, and that's kind of the way that it is is a, for a reporter, where you might you know, if there was a, a player with some background in New England, I might say, "Hey, you know, I went. To, I grew up in Vermont. Uh, went to boarding school in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, I know this person." And then you sort of build on those conversations. Uh, and I think that that probably was the biggest thing, you know, that I developed uh, in my first years of covering baseball it was just sort of that, you know, how to mine uh, the commonality of your backgrounds and how to relate to people. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate, too, in that, I mean, my goodness, you couldn't ask for a better group of people. You know, Bruce Boach, he was the third base coach uh, of the Padres at that time. Trevor Hoffman was traded over to the Padres. He's a great person. Uh, Brad Osmus is a catcher they acquired in midseason that year, and I've, you know, known him since then. Doug Brocao was a pitcher. I bump into those guys, and it's like bumping into guys that I was in a dorm with in college. Uh, you know, because they were all young. I was the young reporter. I was trying to find my way. They were trying to find their way, and you he, he develop, uh, you know, an understanding of how to use that information and write and have it reflected in your stories.
0: So once you go from you go from San Diego to Baltimore, and then you end up at the New York Times. Uh, was it surreal for you to to end up at at you know the the paper of record of the United States?
1: It was uh, it was a dream come true. There's no doubt about it. You know, when I was growing up and I sort of formulating my thought that I wanted to be a sports writer, there are two papers that I wanted to work at. Number one, without a doubt, was the Boston Globe, because Peter Gammons, you know, was a con- his column was one that I read every Sunday. You know, he was an idol to me. <laughs> Maybe in the way that you know now a, a Cam Newton or a-, a Russell Wilson, a Peyton Manning is an idol for a young football player. That's what Peter was like for me. And my this other paper that I wanted to work at, if I couldn't work at the Globe, it was the New York Times. And in the actually in the winter of 1996, the uh, the Boston Globe beat writing job came open, and Gordon Eads and I competed against each other for that.
0: Gordon's and actually Gordon, told me the story before.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Gordon got it, and I was just crushed. I mean, I was broken hearted. I was in tears because I was thinking, you know what? That's my one shot. I'm going to have at the job that I really wanted. And I didn't get it. And what a bummer. And then, you know, two months later, Neil Amber who was a sports editor at the Times, followed up on some earlier conversations. And he said, look, it looks like we're going to have the Mets job opening up. And I'd like to talk to you about that. And I can remember after being offered the job by the Times going into a side room and calling my mom. Uh, calling my wife to be, or we had actually just gotten married, and, and telling them that. And that, that was really an emotional time to be at the New York Times building and to know that I was going to work there.
0: When did it kind of hit you that, oh my God, like my byline is going to be in the New York Times, I'm going to be covering sports for for the New York Times? Well, when
1: it came back for the second interview, I thought at that point I was going to get the job. Uh, but I, I I think that Probably the thing I remember most, and again, the context for me is I come from this little town where you you are literally afraid of cities. I mean, I, I you know grew up in fear of the idea of walking down a street in New York because I knew that any person living in New York was going to come up to me and try to rob me or kill me <laughs> or you know that that's the perspective of some someone growing up in a small town. And by the way, once I started working at the New York Times. I mentioned that to his secretary at the times, Fern Turkowitz, who had actually grown up in New York, and she said, he, "She said that's funny because I was always afraid of being uh, you're like out in the middle of nowhere like you grew up." And he said, she, and she mentioned, "You know, aren't you afraid of the open space?" <laughs> and I and I just looked at her and said, "No, because there's nothing out there. There's like trees. That's it. And it all depends on your perspective." But I uh i remember landing in New York uh for my first job interview there and being in New York for the first time and immediately feeling the increased adrenaline and going into the city and feeling the you know the competition and everyone trying to to go against each other uh in a way that I never felt when I was in Nashville or in san diego and I was totally jazzed up by that and totally you know as someone who's competitive. I was really fired up about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Where where do you think that sense a competition comes from? Because I think I think there's there are people who outside of the, outside of kind of following baseball closely don't realize like how much competition there is when it is uh, when it is when it comes to getting stories and getting scoops.
1: Well, uh, I, you know, for me, I can't. I mean, I was the kid growing up that no one wanted to play with in a board game in my family. My my older sister stopped playing with me in board games probably when I was about eight. Because I wanted to kill everybody when we were playing Monopoly, and if it didn't go well, I was going to pout. And you know, I, and my mom made it very clear to me when I was like nine or ten that she'd stop playing Scrabble with me if I, you know, acted that way. And and I was always really competitive, and and I I like it. Some people, uh, I, I I sort of learned over time that there are definitely reporters where that isn't as important to them, and their biggest thing is they just don't want to get beat. On a story, and I, on the other hand, had a very different feel to it. I wanted a win, and I, I love being out on a ledge on a story, and uh, and you know, and feeling like you're going to get something different than other people have, and you know, that's the case to this day. And I, and I can't imagine that uh, that there's a, you know, people that I compete against don't feel exactly the same way. You're trying to have your work distinguish itself, be dis- uh, be distinguished from the work of people you're going against.
0: Has that sense of competition changed since the the of Twitter?
1: No. No, Well, I I mean, there's some things about uh, the way the industry has changed, which for me have you know sort of really sort of muddied the waters as to you know what is important and what's not. Um, I you know I I know that when I started, for example, when I was at the Nashville Banner, we had a situation where. I had heard that a pitcher who was sent down for minor league rehab assignment was going to finish after the fourth inning, and so I ran down to the clubhouse I tried to sneak out of the clubhouse so the other writer didn't know that I was going down there. And and I I asked, asked, like, three quick questions and then ran back upstairs, and I didn't want the other reporter to know that I was gone. And so then after the game, he went down to talk to the guy, and the guy was gone. And I knew that he was going to leave because I'd been tipped off by someone. And, you know, the next day I have quotes in my story and he didn't. And that's sort of the silly nature of the competition. You know, and over time that evolves into, uh, you know, a a story about a trade, a story about a move. But I I do think that, you know, it's gotten to the point now where uh, there's just people feel obligated to give credit to another reporter if they – put something on twitter one second ahead of that yours when you're all working on it simultaneously I, and i i think it's gotten kind of silly i
0: i mean i kind of feel the same way too because i feel like at a certain point the information is just out there and uh it, and then who i mean I, nobody will remember two days down the line like who broke you know some ma- minor signing no the
1: readers don't care uh, you know the readers don't care and then i recently sorry to interrupt i uh, you know recently had something and first, and it was the first mention of a contract and and I, you know, just tweeted it out and I got a note back the next day from a really re- respected reporter in the industry. He's a great guy. He said, "Look, I'm sorry, I gave credit to this reporter, and actually, you had it a minute ahead of him." And I just sent him a note back. I'm like, "Don't worry about it, because I'm <laughs> not worried about it." And I said, "The only thing you should worry about is serving your own readers. Don't worry about me." Uh, and the other thing too is is that. You know, because, uh, you know, if you, let's say that I uh, got something leaked to me by an agent or a team, you know, 60 seconds ahead of a, another reporter getting leaked something, is that really a scoop? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that really a big deal? I, I mean, on the other hand, if, if uh, you know, to me a scoop is like the Pentagon Papers, right? <laughs> right. Or if you're Woodward, you, Woodward and Bernstein, or if you write a, a great feature in which something uh, tremendous is revealed. But to be the first to tweet out that someone has a limited no-trade clause and you get that 60 seconds ahead of the rest of the industry, I just don't really see that that's necessarily a scoop, especially, I think, with the you know the lines blurred with so many reporters now actually working for uh, baseball teams and for Major League Baseball.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's interesting about that is that, um, I think, I think there are lots of young people, uh, coming up today who will see kind of the, the spur of retweets and favorites and all that stuff when it comes to like breaking a story and then will kind of lose sight as to like what, what exactly the purpose of journalism is. Like whether it's, whether it's just like tweeting out first that, uh, player X signs with team Y for X amount of money, or if it is like really about storytelling and, um, and really, uh, you know, be, being able to inform your readers about who somebody is or why something happened.
1: Well, and I, I feel like that probably my view on that is old fashioned and probably out of date. <laughs> you know, and antiquated. I, as I mentioned, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be like coworkers with these guys. I don't, I, I, I just, I've never taken a dime from a team. I've never taken a dime from an entity that I covered. I don't feel comfortable with that. Uh, and I, you know, I feel like that my job is to, uh, you know, educate readers on some event or some player, and your goal is to get as absolutely co- close to the truth as possible, regardless of how uncomfortable that might be. Okay, and and obviously, if there's a relationship between, uh, you know, yourself and a player, or yourself and a team, or yourself and the sports entity, you know that has the potential for being compromised mm-hmm. and, and that's why I just was never comfortable with that, but as I mentioned, I just don't I, I think that my view is is now probably that of a dinosaur because I, I just see the lines crossed all the time and you know, conversations I hear about, you know, the relationships between reporters and agents, it's just it's gone to places that I just am not comfortable with.
0: What is the most uncomfortable you felt while getting a scoop? Gosh,
1: um Probably, well, there are a couple, and I think that, uh, I, you know, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but uh, I remember once there was a a pitcher who, a young pitcher who was with the Yankees, and he had a really bad game. And when we went to talk to the player after the game, and he said two words, uh, his first two words came out of his mouth, I knew that he was he had been drinking. And part of me, by then, I'm, you know, was in my mid 30s, wanted to be, like pull him aside. My instinct as a human being is pull him aside and said, "Look, just, you know, you've had something to drink. This might not be the best place for you to be <laughs> in front of a bunch of reporters." Um, and but you can't do that. You got to ask the questions, and the player answered them. And this player ripped Joe Torre, the manager, ripped the pitching coach uh, about the way that he was handled, and I was just cringing. Um, I probably, this is more to your point about, you know, the most uncomfortable. You remember the Roberto Alomar spitting incident. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was covering the Orioles at that time for the Baltimore Sun. That happened on a Friday night, the spitting incident. And after the game, uh, Jason Lockenfora, who was at that time an intern at the Baltimore Sun, uh, came upstairs cause he had stayed behind. Robbie uh, Alomar had taken a long time to come out of the, uh, come out to talk to reporters and Jason was among the reporters, and, and he said to me when it came to the press box, you're not going to believe what Robbie said about John Hershbeck, the umpire he spat on. And I'm like, well, what did he say? And then he proceeded to tell me how Robbie had mentioned that since John's uh, son had passed away with a congenital illness, he wasn't the same in terms of how he carried himself. And it was just absolutely a cringe-worthy quote, and one that I was just like, oh, my God because uh, it just felt like it moved into, like, a different realm. Now, obviously, you know, Robbie said all that on the record, that we had the full context in the piece, but I can tell you that the next, and this is before, you know, the Internet, it was popular in that fall of 1996, and overnight I was just praying that John Hirschbeck would hear about the quotes and be able to process those quotes in a private setting, and I did not want to be the person to bring the quotes to him. The next morning, the Orioles were getting ready to play the Blue Jays, and I went into the umpire's room, and Mark Maskey who works at the Washington Post, Dave Ginsberg who worked at the Associated Press, the three of us went to the umpire's room and to ask John about the discipline that was coming up with Robbie. And, he, and uh, John couldn't have been nicer, and he brought us into the umpire's room, and he was telling us about he filed a file of the report and uh, you know what was in the report and we got done that, converse, that part of the conversation. I said to John, I said, hey, did you uh, happen to read the newspapers this morning? Because in Toronto, the Sun and the Star both had Robbie's quotes about John's son. And John looked at us and said, no, why? What did he say? And I was just like, oh, boy. And I began to read the quotes back to him, and the poor man just completely broke down in front of us. And, you know, Jim McKean was one of the other umpires who was in the room, and he uh Saw what was happening with John, and he immediately ushered us out and said, Okay, guys, thanks. And we went out the door from the Empire's room, and two seconds after we walked out, John charged out behind us and went over to the visitor's clubhouse, which is only like 15 feet away from their door, to the and tried to get Robbie, and tried to go at Robbie, and he was screaming at him and uh, screaming about uh, what Robbie had said about his son, and, and that was just awful. And, you know, I just, to this day just, especially now that I have two kids of my own, just feel so bad for that and and what happened with John that day. And I hated being a reporter in that situation. Uh, How do you and, handle and that? Presenting that? Well, I mean, just write what happened. And, and, you know, what happened was is that John, you know, got within, from what I understand, uh, you know, five, eight feet of Robbie before he was restrained by players. And then you just write about what happened. It all happened in front of us. And so just as a reporter, you play it straight. Uh, you, you relate what happened, uh, you know, about John getting visibly upset. And the fact is, you know, he didn't umpire that day. And I, I don't think he umpired the next day, either, the last game of the series. No, he did umpire last game of the series. Um, and, and he just document what, what took place. But just at a human level, it was just awful. And and obviously, anybody who's reported for any length of time, at some point, you you are in a position where you're calling – uh, a family of of someone who's passed away, uh, unexpectedly, young athlete, and those are always hard. But that, that alomar Herspeck thing was just awful.
0: So on a brighter note, you covered a, a ton of very successful Yankees teams uh, during your time at the New York Times, and you wrote a book about it. Um, during that time period, what did you kind of remember about the success of those teams, and what kind of stood out to you?
1: Well, they— what I what I absolutely loved at that time was just how much those guys cared. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about Derek Jeter, or you're talking about Bernie Williams, or Joe Girardi, or you know, Tori, Mariano Rivera. It was just a great group of guys to cover. And uh, in 1998, you know, that year when they went on to win 125 games, I mean, they were just relentless in a way that I. You know, I had never seen before that because I had covered an Orioles team in 96, which drove me crazy because the effort just seemed to be so intermittent. And then you go to cover that team in 98, and they just wanted to kill everybody every single day. They'd been, you know, eliminated from the playoffs the year before, and uh, and that drove them all the way through the 98 season. But the funny thing is, is, you know, you get asked all the time about who you root for.
0: And, and I always
1: tell people, although I was a psychotic Dodger fan as a kid, once I started covering uh, AAA, that changed entirely. And you tell people after that, you root for stories. And I can remember Paul O'Neill coming up to me, uh, the Yankees right fielder, late in the 98 season. And he, he, had, this, you know, he had this great Ohio drawl, and he goes, hey, Buster, you, you root for us, right? I said, Paul, let me tell you something. And I was dead honest with him. I said, I am rooting for you guys to win the World Series because that's the most interesting outcome of the story. Uh, I said, if you guys lose in the postseason, then everything you've done this season hasn't been validated. And on the other hand, if you win the World Series, then you'll go down in history as one of the greatest teams, maybe maybe the greatest team of all time. And, uh, and I said, that would be a pretty cool story to, to write about. And he looked at me in nods because that's what I thought. And I said, Paul, you know what else would be kind of cool to cover? If next year the same group of players lost every single game. That would be really interesting, too.
0: And <laughs> it kind of looked to me funny. I don't,
1: I don't think he quite understood, uh, you know, exactly what I was getting at. But that's kind of the reporter's perspective. You, you're always rooting for the most interesting outcome, so you got something interesting to write about.
0: So, you spent you spent a couple of years in the New York Times and then uh, ESPN. Six, yeah, I
1: was there for six years.
0: Yeah, so you, and then and then ESPN happens. Um, Peter Gammons was obviously a pioneer in that realm too, and become kind of one of the first sports reporters on TV, kind of breaking news and stuff. Uh, you you also go to ESPN. How did that uh, come about?
1: Well, John Walsh, uh, who was you know one of the most important people in the history of ESPN, had reached out to me, and we'd had uh, a couple lunches uh, just to talk. And the New York Times – at the time, I was just having a couple of informal conversations with with John. The uh, New York Times was going through a dramatic change. Just before uh, 9-11, Hal Raines took over as the executive editor, and Hal was from Alabama, and he really – uh, loved college football, and he believed in college sports. And so when he took over uh, the times, at that point, the sports section changed dramatically from basically being a, a very New York-centric uh, cover-the-beats of the Yankees, uh, you know, the Mets, uh, the Knicks, to being a more of a national uh, coverage focused around college sports, and I hated it. And I thought it was wrong. To this day, I thought it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, and, and, you know, in the fall of 2002, I had started covering the New York Giants because my daughter was born, and she was a year and a half old, and I knew that I had to come off the the, uh, the baseball beat because there's too many days on the road. And so I was covering the New York Giants in the fall of 2002, and, you know, you're, you're covering this team that has tremendous interest in the New York area, and you pick up the paper at, at the New York Times in the morning, and there's a, a story in Wofford College. And at one point, I remember calling – uh, what the sports editor and said, you realize that there have been more st- stories on the front page of our section on Wofford College than the New York Giants in the last four months? <laughs> and so I-, I was whining about that and griping about that. And, and then into the spring of 2003 – I whined and griped about it enough that I made up my mind that I I was either gonna have to stop whining and griping or I was gonna have to find something else to do. And literally the next day after I made up my mind about that I got a call from John Wallace who said, Okay, you know, we have something open, we want to talk to you about it and it got very serious with the time or with the with ESPN and I knew right away that if I got offered I was gonna go. And you know, and I loved the New York Times and the New York Times people were great and I loved working there, but I also knew it was time to go or else I was just going to be whining and griping. Uh, and so when I got the offer, I didn't even, you know, go back and forth to the New York Times. I just told him, said, look, this came up, I'm leaving.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Peter Gammons was such a huge part of kind of shaping baseball coverage over at And I know you have a, a very close relationship with Peter. Um, how did How did you kind of develop your relationship with him?
1: Well, I actually met Peter for the first time, and there's no reason that he would remember this. I'm sure he doesn't. But when I was a, a sophomore at, at uh, Vanderbilt, the baseball winter meetings were in Nashville, and I was 19 years old, and I went out, and uh, I got to see, you know, meet Peter there as someone I and, and got to listen to him talk to a group of reporters. And as I say, you know, some people might get excited about meeting a player that they followed. I I was excited about meeting Peter. And then in 1989, I think it was, the Wonder meetings came back to Nashville. I went out there again, uh, listened to him, talked to him. There's no reason that he would remember me at that time. But when I started covering the Padres, Peter reached out to me for something. And we pretty much since then have talked, you know, uh, if not every day, you know, five, six days a week. And, you know, even after he left ESPN, we're, you know, very close friends. And he's obviously meant the world to me, and he's been a great model for me. Uh, in terms of how you go about your business.
0: What 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 kind of things has he taught you? Well, I
1: think one thing that separates Peter is that he uh, he always likes people, you know, no matter what. I mean, because this is a cynical business. When you uh, And I think we've seen it with a, the Cam Newton coverage, where there's like a weariness after the press conference stuff, <laughs> where people are like, oh, God, I'm sick of talking about Cam Newton. I can't stand that part of it. Uh, and reporters, and I've been around him, I've probably been guilty of it myself, they grow to despise a player, or maybe a player's, or maybe, and I've heard this, I'm sure you have too, there's some level of jealousy with some reporters, with players. And the great thing about Peter is, is that Peter always has enjoyed people and always has kept an open mind, and, and I think that's distinguished his work. And it's, you know, a great lesson for me, in that, uh, you know, there might be someone you might be in a disagreement with, maybe you get yelled at by a general manager. Uh, but Peter, I think, is an example of someone who always, always finds a reason, uh, you know, to keep an open mind and to talk to people.
0: Yeah, I remember, so Peter probably doesn't remember this at all, but I was, uh, I was interning at uh, WEI during one of my summers, and uh and I was one of the only people standing around the Red Sox clubhouse. Everybody had gone up to John Farrell's press conference for the day. And it was basically just me, another intern, and Peter Gammons. And he walks over to us. He just starts talking to us about uh, the Astros' game plan for the draft and how the Astros probably weren't going to sign Brady Aiken. And he just kind of starts spilling all of this information kind of unprompted. And it was really fascinating and uh, crazy just to, like, be around Peter Gammons. He was just, like, giving us all of this knowledge that nobody else knew. Um, and it was, it was was it was incredibly endearing. I, on my end, just being as, as someone who watched Peter growing up and um, obviously know of his legend uh, covering baseball, it was just, it's kind of surreal, to, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, and, and
1: I think what I said before about Tony Glenn and how accessible he was and how generous he was, I, I mean, that's absolutely the same with Peter. And, and it comes out of a joy uh, – uh, you know a reporter's joy and out of the joy of the game, but it you know if you get to know Peter at all, you understand that it's not only about you know just baseball he's like i mean Peter and I talk probably a third of our conversation are about politics, and we just love the you know the give and take of of the presidential primaries and uh, you know the campaigning that's gone on and, <laughs> and and the thing is, is that he is he's just so open, so accessible, and everybody everybody likes peter and everybody respects peter in the game and uh you know i'll i'll always feel fortunate that i can call him a friend
0: was it when once once peter left espn was it did you feel any pressure as kind of his uh era parent as kind of the top no, baseball guy I, I,
1: no and i and i you know first off that you know tim Kirch and and jason stark and jerry krasnick uh, you know those guys are all ahead of the pecking order um, ahead of me in the pecking order, you know, and, and uh, you know Tim is going to be honored at the Hall of Fame someday. Jason will be. Jerry will be as well. Uh, but I was heartbroken. I, I remember hearing the news because I was not aware, even though Peter and I have the same agent, uh, I wasn't aware because I don't really like to ask colleagues their business in, in situations like that. So I wasn't peppering Peter with questions about how his negotiations were going on with ESPN. But Peter walked up to me one day, and he was like, well, it's a dumb deal. You know, I'm leaving, and I just I couldn't believe it because it felt like it went from zero to 60 miles per hour in that one sentence and for me. And and I just was brokenhearted because I just enjoyed working with him so much. And, and uh, you know, while we talk all the time, there definitely it moves your conversation into a different place when you're working for two entities that are competing against each other, and that would mean that you know going forward there'd be things that I I couldn't tell Peter, yeah, this is why I'm making this flight, and he couldn't tell me, and that was kind of a bummer. Uh, mm-hmm. At that time it happened, I realized it right away.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you I mean you started doing a lot of uh, television for ESPN uh, once you. Um... Once when, when you started moving over, and so you were kind of in, so you were kind of in direct competition with Peter because he went over to MLB Network. How was how was that to deal with? How, how did you kind of deal with you know having to compete with him?
1: Oh, I just you know I, I don't. It wasn't it wasn't difficult in terms of dealing with it because I, I you know I think that's it really is no different than when I was at the New York Times and and he was at ESPN. You're not going to tell him absolutely everything. And he's not going to tell you absolutely everything about what he's working on in a given day, but you can still have some great conversations. And that's, you know, to this day, that's the way it is. Uh, and I, you know, learned from his example in terms of uh, adjusting to being on camera. You know, he was always a great role model in that regard because, uh, and I'm sure you, you know, you read John Walsh's descriptions about their thinking when they started bringing reporters on board. And I, Certainly got that experience when I first went over to ESPN where uh, I had a terrible appearance on SportsCenter once, 6 o'clock SportsCenter. Dan Patrick goes on there. They brought me in to talk about the Orioles signing of Javier Lopez. And I had no idea how to deal with all the cameras that you have in studio as opposed to a single shot. And I completely froze, and it was uh, an awful flop-sweat moment that, you know, make Marco Rubio look like he was composed. And when I got done, uh, when I got done, my appearance, Chuck Salaturu, who was a uh, news editor at ESPN, met me as I came off because he knew I knew that this was going to be the the last appearance I ever make at ESPN because it was so bad. He goes, Buster, you know what? We got you free information. Uh, you'll figure out the TV stuff as you go along, and and I, you know, I know Peter had a similar type journey where you just get comfortable to the point your heart rate is not 500 beats per minute, and you understand in a way that you didn't, you know, when I was at the New York Times, I always looked at, at TV reporters as being some sort of a lower life form, and then you realize that the challenge that you have working on television is basically the same as if writing a game story, where you're trying to communicate. Uh, Some information, but it's just the form is different. Instead of 800 words at the New York Times, it's 30 to 45 seconds at ESPN.
0: Mm -hmm. At one point, did you kind of realize that you were uh, feeling comfortable uh, being on TV on a a consistent basis?
1: Probably, uh, I want to say I was like three or four years into it. As I say, you get your heart rate slowed down. And I think the progression was a lot like when I started writing game stories on Deadline. I, I, I had nightmare experiences when i was at the san diego union when i first went over there because you have have to write 15 inches of copy in approximately 30 minutes and when you first start doing it it feels like that you're like creating a disaster every night and you're disappointing everybody and it's terrible and in a lot of cases it probably was terrible but then at some point you get comfortable with the time, and you learn the process, and you learn yourself in terms of how much you can do and what amount of time to the point when I was at the New York Times uh, when I was covering the Yankees, I'd play chicken with myself because normally I, when I would, I'd like to start my game stories in about the fourth inning, and some nights I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to wait another inning. And, you know what, I'm going to wait until the seventh inning <laughs> <laughs> and before I start writing the game story. And you understand, I mean, I had times by the time I, you know, was at the Times where I'd write a thousand-word game story in 35 minutes because you just feel the flow of it. And I think the same process happened uh, when I was at ESPN, where after a while you get comfortable and you slow down your your brain enough where you can create something uh, without knowing where as you start where you're going to wind up, but you're able to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. You transitioned, I mean, you started doing a lot of sideline reporting in the last, you know, f- five, five years-ish, I guess. Yeah. Uh, how How is that different from anything you you had done before?
1: Well, it's very different, and it's not like they send you to sideline reporting school.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and there are a lot of things, I remember the first time that I did that, and you got a producer and you're saying, stand up, look at the upper, th- you know, uh, high third. And I, I didn't know what that meant and and then over time you learn about that and you learn about you know looking in the right direction you learn learn about and this is i think that i felt always comfortable with because probably because i grew up listening to games on the radio i i always felt like i could get into a uh, a piece of information and get out quickly enough for the next pitch which is really important in that job in other words if Dan Schulman throws down and say buster you have more on uh, uh, David Ortiz's impending free agency. You basically have you know 20 20 to 25 seconds, and as you're talking, you're watching the pitcher, you're watching the catcher, and you have to make sure that in in virtually every case that you're going to get out of that and present the information before the next pitch is thrown.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you do a ton of things on a daily basis. Like I'll I'll be up. Do finishing up my homework at like three in the morning, I'll see you starting to tweet out your morning links. No, make me feel like, Oh, I gotta I gotta go to bed. Uh, you do that and you do the <laughs> podcast on a daily basis during the season. Um, how do you how do you balance all that? What is your daily schedule like?
1: Well, and we talked about, you know, growing up on a farm, It, it I, I've always loved to write early in the morning. And that means if,
0: you know, you wake
1: up at 3.30, you know, 4 o'clock, you go to it. And and you start collecting links for the column that I do. Um, you know, that usually takes me about an hour, hour and a half, two hours to go through all the papers around the country. Uh, you know, I might sometimes I, I will have written a lead to the column the night before. Sometimes I don't. Or sometimes I just uh, back up a plan lead and and go with breaking news. Like if there's an injury in a West Coast game, uh, I remember I was actually up and saw Buster Posey had 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 his ankle shattered on that play at home plate, and right away, you know, I knew that the column the next day. In fact, I started writing. It was something around one or one thirty in the morning. Uh, I started writing because I knew that this was going to be a play that was going to be talked about by Major League Baseball, and they might change the rules. So. You do that, and and, uh, my son gets on the bus at approximately 7.20, and so I usually take a break about 6.45, put him on the bus, resume about 7.30, turn that in by 8. The podcast taping usually starts between 8.45 and 9. Sometimes that can be uh, adjusted or affected by the sports center schedule because they will contact you and say, hey, uh, Buster Posey had his leg broken last night. Can you come on air? And I've got one of those uh, glow point cameras in my house, and so I might tape a hit uh, with them, say eight thirty or maybe we'll do a live at nine o'clock, and that's sort of interspersed with the podcast taping and you know that stuff along with the radio hit's usually done by about ten fifteen for me every morning, and then you sort of get into the reporting part of your day uh and you know along the way, you're trying to mix in a run get some exercise, go mow the lawn uh that sort of thing and and you know you're making phone calls and uh, doing some radio things during the course of the day until the games start, either that afternoon or, or
0: uh, at night. How do you balance all of that with having a family and, and being a, a normal human being?
1: Well, I I'm, one thing for sure is is that when you are with your kids, uh, you you put down the phone and and you put away the phone. Now they my kids have been just great about, Understanding that there's some situations in which plans get blown up uh, where, you know, Derek Jeter's traded. They understand that they are going to be sometimes when you say, hey, you know, those plans we had, well, I can't do it because this thing happened and I'm going to be on television. But I think in return for that, most of the time, if you have something that you're going to do, then you go there, uh, you know, you take your son to the park, you're outside playing catch with him, and you're not always checking your phone. And that time that you have with them belongs to them. And um you know, they they're really good. They've always been really great at understanding that. And and I think by telling them that ahead of time, hey, in an hour I have to do this, so let's go out and do this together, then uh then then they are that prepares them ahead of time and I think that's really important.
0: Where do you kind of see yourself uh, moving forward? Uh, I mean, you're doing a lot of things, um, but, you know, people's interests change, people's uh, passions change. What do you kind of see yourself doing in maybe like 10 years as a a journalist?
1: Probably uh, working on books, I want to say, you know, five, six, seven years from now. uh, I could absolutely see myself doing that. I mean, you know, maybe some long form magazine pieces, which you don't really have time to do these days. But definitely a shift, and I, I definitely want to teach. Uh, I've been able to uh, coach my son's basketball team. I'm I'm really the assistant coach because I can't always tell uh, you know the kids that I'm going to be absolutely here at a given place at a given time because you're 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 at the at the mercy of the news cycle. But I love to coach, and I wouldn't at all be surprised if that's what I wound up doing for an extended period of time is teaching and coaching.
0: What is it about teaching that, or in coaching that makes uh, that makes you want to do that maybe down the road?
1: I just love to work with with young people. I mean, I you know love to uh, talk with someone like yourself. I love to go and do stuff at classes every winter. You, most of the time during the summer you have to say no to requests because I travel uh, 25 out of 26 weekends for Sunday night baseball. You know, I'm away in March. I'm away in October. But what I do is, is that every January, you know, I'll do something in my old uh, high school. Uh, I did something this year, Western New England College. Uh, I'm going to Vanderbilt. To I'm sorry.
0: My dad used to teach at Western New England College. There you go. Uh,
1: I, you know, I do a thing at Vanderbilt every year. I did a thing up. This is the first year I didn't do it, but uh, for for almost 20 years, I did something every winter at Columbia uh, at their grad school with Sandy Padway when he was a professor there. And you know, I, I always am fascinated by the questions that you're asked and uh, the things that people are interested in. And and you just, you know, I, I remember Coach Meyer. Uh, once said to me that the thing that he loved about coaching is he loves to see people get better mm-hmm. in basketball and that's the way that I feel too you know whether you're coaching or whether you see a young reporter and I always tell you know students his great story that when I was at the Baltimore Sun that we had uh, an intern there who was probably the worst writer that i've ever seen for someone 2021 but you could see like his passion and you could see the questions he was asked asked uh that he was gonna be great at the end of the the year that he worked with us. I got uh you know, an email from one of the editors and said, you know, tell us what you think about this person. I wrote a letter and basically said, I I feel like I'm Nolan Ryan's high school coach. Like this guy's gonna be great. Forget what you're reading. You know eventually he'll be great. And the Baltimore Sun didn't hire him and I remember hearing that going, You're crazy. And that was Jason lock and fora. did <laughs> you just see how much passion he had and how great his questions were and how you know how uh quick he was in developing a rapport and it was really cool working with him that year and just seeing how much better he was getting along the way
0: hmm what 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 do you what do you like to do outside of uh outside of baseball stuff
1: well uh you know i mean i i always have always uh, been an avid runner. Uh, love to do that, and the cool thing is, you know, getting uh, going to different cities is always better. You know, cool places to run in each of those places. I love history. I was a history major at Vanderbilt. Uh, love Civil War history. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by politics. So really interested in that. Uh, and as I say, I, I just, you know, any chance you get to, you know, be involved in any sort of teaching or coaching, that that's always been fun when I've been able to find the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh well this seems like a pretty good place to stop Buster. I I really really appreciate the time. This was not only just l- like illuminating for me but it was it was a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and yeah and thanks for like I said I the questions are always fascinating so see see what people are interested in. So uh, great job with that. All
0: see right, ya. have a good one. Yep, bye. Well, thanks again to Buster Only for coming on to the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. If you guys do enjoy the show, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you listen to these things on. uh, And make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes as well uh, if you feel so inclined. We got our first rating this week, which was super exciting. Uh, So please head over there, rate the show, tell a friend it would be much appreciated. Uh, next week we have another baseball writing legend on. We have uh, Tom Verducci of sports illustrated. Uh, we had a really great conversation. I think you guys are going to also enjoy listening to that as well. Uh, Tom and I really went delve deep into kind of the craft of baseball reporting and, and just kind of sports writing in general. So, uh, this was it was kind of a different tone from what the what the podcast was with Buster today, but uh, I'm I'm sure you guys will enjoy listening to that conversation as well. Uh, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Bartolo uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at IamJuneLee. Uh, if you guys have any questions or anything you want to say to us uh, about the podcast, you can shoot us an email at doinginforbartolo at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again to Paul Swyden, David Appleman for hosting the show on the Hardball Times. Uh, and uh, until next week, uh, we'll see you guys in the next one.